Welcome to the Close Knit Podcast, a podcast that aims to hold space for conversation to be had about the ways we use fiber to process life and world events. This is episode 53 of the Close Knit Podcast, and today I am joined by Gianna Seberger, who founded GDS in 2015. Growing up in Brazil deeply influenced her work, a place where in the 80s, bakeries could be found every few blocks and skilled seamstresses still sewed a good portion of people's everyday wardrobes. Community was the connection between everything, including food and fashion. With both people and environment in mind, Gianna's dream is for GDS to become a meaningful part of her community through products that excite consumers into learning about how their purchasing choices impact their direct neighbors as well as people on the other side of the globe. Thank you so much for joining me today, Gianna. Hi, Ani. Nice to be here. It's so nice to have you here. This is the first time I'm ever doing a like in-person with a proper mic set up in my home, and it's like, it's a very cool feeling. Yeah. Um, it's an honor to be the first, I guess, yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, this is our first like 2020 episode, which I'm really excited about. I needed a, a little bit of a break to kind of like reset. I've been doing the podcast for a long time, but I was excited to come back with it, particularly with this idea of like, I live here right now. I live in the Bay Area in all of its mess and all of its glory. I live here right now. And There are so many people here doing such incredible things within food and fiber and all of the many intersections. And so it just made a lot of sense to me to start with you. So I'm really glad that you're here today. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Thanks. I want to ask you about kind of your earliest memory of something with fiber textiles. Hmm. Yeah, it goes way back. I actually uh, can't remember a time when I wasn't surrounded by women picking textiles and deciding on designs for things for for us to wear. So I have a brother and a sister, and mm-hmm. my sister and I were really close in age. So oftentimes my sister and I would well, like get the same outfits, like we'd be dressed the same way. So like for special occasions, um, my grandmother and my mom, and sometimes there'd be like an aunt or the cousin of somebody, like just somebody else. <laughs> and they'd all be at the dining room table, um, like cutting out patterns. And um, I very clearly remember these little outfits that um, I don't even remember what the special occasion was, but my sister and I got matching outfits. Mm. They were organza. They were beautiful. Mm. Um, my sister was, I think she got a little black outfit and I got a, a yellow one. Anyway, it was absolutely adorable, but this is just what I was like born into. Yeah. Like, and my grandmother especially was like an excellent seamstress. Right. Okay. So I was... Yeah, just surrounded by this, like, really high-quality work in the home, but, like, just these really skilled people, Mm -hmm. yeah, from a really young age. And where your grandmother, like, so was this her profession? Did she, was this her thing she did at home? Like, what was, what's her story? Yeah, my grandmother's story, this, this is, um, my version of her, and I'm sure there's so much more to it, but, um, from a really young age, I, this is what I understood about my grandmother, my grandfather was like not the best husband. Um, he he just like slept around. He was not. Aww. Yeah, he was just like not the. Come on, Gramps. I know, I know. <laughs> um, so he wasn't super present in my life. But I grew up hearing okay. my, my grandmother left him um, during a time. Uh, when like that was just like not a normal thing to do. Mm-hmm. She was already doing uh, seamstressing work before she left him, and she was like already well known in the community as like the. She was a designer that like the young women went to because mm-hmm. uh, because of her two like super fashionable daughters. My mom was one of them. Yeah, so um, I, I feel like things are getting a little convoluted here, but. <laughs> no, you're good. It's great. I No, I loved... I mean, I think what's really cool about this is that there's so much additional context for like, okay, grandma is a seamstress. She's kind of always done this amazing sewing work. Your yes. mother's super fashionable. All the people in this town are coming together. Like, they know her. Mm-hmm. She's just this amazing seamstress. She is. Yeah. And I think the, the thing that really stuck in my mind is that she... Th- that was kind of like her superpower a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then... For me, growing up in this environment where, like, everybody was so proud of her, and for some reason it was so such an inspiration that, like, 
she could be that amazing and so many people loved her and she was on her own like she did not need a man to support her or any of that so yeah that was a really interesting thing that I think molded me in some way yeah Totally. That makes complete sense yeah. to me. And that I was, I mean, the second that you mentioned, like, she was like, and then she left. I was like, oh, that sounds radical, particularly for that time period. Yeah. And in South America too. Right. You know, so okay. I think things were different. Yeah. 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 So when you, so you were this age kind of like witnessing all of this happening as you were young Gianna in your beautiful yellow organza <laughs> dress, which just sounds perfect. Um, were you kind of, other than kind of like osmosising it up, kind of, you know, interested in it in that way, did you kind of start working with textiles in your own right at that age? I did. Yeah, I would um, like knit little skirts for my dolls oh. um, or like sew scrunchies. I was sewing my own scrunchies from, I don't know, my mom gave me a needle at a really young age. So um cute. I mean, that's about it. Like, yeah. I, I wasn't making myself anything. Um, I was probably part of the design process. Um, for the garments that I was wearing, but mm. I wasn't really making anything more than like just little things for my dolls. That's adorable. Yeah. I also really like this. I feel like I've heard this a few times from people, this kind of collaborative design process with their parents or grandparents, where it's like a thing that's for you mm-hmm. and you have this say in it. I don't recall for myself. I don't sort of, I'm sure I was very demanding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I had a lot of opinions. But I don't really recall that process, and I like that people have more recollection of that than I feel that I have. Yeah. I remember having a choice with colors, usually. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. That's, that's like, a clear memory, but um, otherwise, maybe I did just get whatever they wanted me to wear. Right. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Totally possible. Right. And were these, like... Was it often for, like, special occasions that these things were being sewn, or this was just everyday wear? Mostly it was special occasions. Yeah. So, yeah, at that time, most, um, like, everyday clothing, it was just, like, you know, we were going to stores, getting ready to wear. Right. Um, uh, yeah, I don't, like, I don't remember having, like, everyday, like, shorts or, like, little shirts that it would just, like, go to school in. Yeah, it was yeah. mostly the special occasion stuff. Yeah, yeah. And I guess... I mean, so I have, I feel like I lack a lot of like cultural context for what life in Brazil must have been like. What were those, were they the same special occasions that you have here? I feel like they're probably very different. This is super ignorant. (laughs) No, I mean, they they were pretty much the same. Okay. Yeah. There were like weddings or, um, okay. There's one thing that's different and I don't even remember what this event is called, but it's uh, once a year and it's a, oh my God, I'm going to sound so ignorant about like my own culture and upbringing. But so this area where I um, am from in, in Brazil, it's, I'm from Southern Brazil. Uh-huh. Um, there's, um, that's where like the gaucho culture comes from. It's oh. on the Brazil borders of Argentina. So like a lot of that, um, there's a lot of like share culture there. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a party that happens every year and it's basically you wear like these prairie dresses it's like very like yeah I guess that's the best way to describe it and that was a unique situation to like definitely specific to that area of southern Brazil so super weird uh very like yeah definitely like speaks to like the the whiteness of uh, southern Brazil. Right. Yeah. Super weird. Prairie Brazil. That's yeah. a, that's a very interesting image. Yeah. It's, it's a, I think it was an, um, a celebration that started during the colonial time, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's just like stuck through the years and generations. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So that was like a, we're making your outfit for this event that mm-hmm. happens. Mm-hmm. Huh. That's super interesting. Yeah, I was just curious what, you know, I I think I remember my mom making me, I mean, I don't, my family is not even religious, but she made me like an Easter dress or something. And it had like a a little watering can purse. Aww. (laughs) I hope she still has it somewhere. I feel like probably she does. She probably got embarrassed at some point and was like, oh, this was silly. Why did I make, you know, but I have such a strong sense memory of like, yeah, this little (laughs) child would love it. Yeah. Yeah. I thought it was very cool, but that's kind of the only thing I can remember in terms of like what she made. Yeah. So you're, you know, knitting your, knitting your skirts for your dolls, making your scrunchies, being very fashion forward. I mean, little did we know, like here we are 25 years later and they're back in fashion. 
So I guess I wonder, I always wonder kind of like, okay, you have this, you know, interest in textiles that comes from this familial lineage and this kind of osmosis of just being around it and how that then kind of informs where you've gotten to today. Like, do you have kind of a, I'd love to hear kind of the story arc from like that point to Mm -hmm. like where GDS is now. Yeah, I feel like there are a few points in my history between then and now that speak to like the continuation of textile being very alive in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, The first time since my childhood that that really, uh, since like my really early childhood, that that peaked again was in my like teenage years. I think I was probably like, like middle of high school or something. I must have just been like rummaging through the house and found my mom's old sewing machine. Mm. And um, I think I made like a a little bag. I started to just like explore and make things. Uh, And that's when I realized that I learned some basics of pattern making in my childhood. Mm. It was just in my brain. Whoa. Which is crazy, right? Yeah. I was really paying attention when my grandmother and the other women were drafting patterns on newspaper. They would just like Mm. literally use newspapers. And so I did the same thing. I'm like, newspaper, the largest piece of paper that we have. And I grabbed um, an item of clothing and traced it. And I I made myself uh, a burlap vest. I was already interested in natural fibers. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then I became a little bit obsessed with, like, fabric shopping and exploring different things. And most of the things that I made early on didn't fit super well. But Mm. I was, you know, I was, like, making darts and um, doing, like, I was just... I wasn't afraid of these things because I was like, oh, this is easy. All of these, like, all of the women in my family do this. This is totally normal. So, right. like, none of it was intimidating. And then I remember the first time I tried to use a pattern, and I was like, whoa, this is intimidating. <laughs> like, clear instructions, completely overwhelming. And I kind of just, maybe that sort of uh, intensity of sewing for myself was kind of went back and forth a little bit. Yeah. And then in college, um, I studied sculpture, and most of my sculptural work was done in textiles, Mm. and that took many, like, many different forms, Mm. Um, but that exploration, I think, was really, really interesting. Like, when I look back at it now, it's still a little perplexing. It was definitely a lot of, like, exploration of identity Mm. um, in textile form. Yeah. Um, I did play around a little bit with uh, 4D, um, like video, and every once in a while I was like forced to use a different material, which I did. Um, <laughs> but uh, but then I was like, yeah, no, like textiles just is just like my language. Mm. That definitely rang like very true to me. Mm. Yeah. And then after college, I really took a break from sewing from art making mm. for a long time it uh it felt art in general felt very disconnected from the reality of what I needed to do to survive after mm. college <laughs> um so even though I you know in college I was set up for like a career in art I was like ah I don't know that just felt really it felt silly to me for a moment mm-hmm. like I'm just gonna be frank and not to like I very much value art and I think it's very necessary in the world. But for me at that time, as like an immigrant, as like a college graduate living in poverty, like Mm -hmm. (laughs) I needed health insurance. Yes. Um, That just wasn't a reality for me. Yeah. yeah. Um, But then I got a job in a textile company store and eventually worked myself up to an admin position and then eventually was um, an assistant textile buyer Mm. so there I was like completely in the middle of this textile world right where I was learning so much about the industry in the country really about the like situation the like the state of textiles worldwide Mm. really um because we were buying things internationally and really got to see how just how it all works how a how a store ends up with like designer leftovers um like who who are the middle people like like all the different ways you can purchase textiles um all the different qualities all the kind of information that can be gathered from 
depending on like who your textile source is. Wow. Just learned so much. And then of course, like this passion for textile that I had that at some point was like nostalgic. And then at some point was like a creative expression of identity mm. then became this like, I, yeah, I don't know how to describe it, but it became like uh, more pragmatic mm. and uh, the reality of it was really interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. So that was, when was that? I want to say it was 2007 uh-huh. that I started at Brightex. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's just, it's amazing. Like, it's so clear from the way that you talk about fiber and fabrics and sourcing and like on your Instagram and just anywhere that you are, like that this is something that you've thought a ton about and that you have a lot of experience doing. So it's super interesting to hear that like one of the core pieces or maybe like a seed that was helping to plant that or help give you sort of the context for it globally was that job. It was Mm -hmm. like you found a job in a fabric store and then you like just got more and more interested. Mm -hmm. It's really, really cool. And it, I think it also like kind of takes away a little bit of the mystique or the like oh I could never it's too scary or it's too difficult or in the same way that you were like I've just been seeing this done this isn't scary this Mm -hmm. is totally fine when your average person looks at you know a garment how could I possibly there's just no way yeah there's just no way so when when you were at Brightex and and learning all of this stuff about textile sourcing and just textiles in general, was there a point there where you were kind of like, oh, I could see producing something myself, or this is something I really want to work on in my own capacity? Yeah, I mean, it would have been so helpful if I had had a vision like that. It would have been really helpful to have had a vision for a business and like set out on this like journey towards like having a business. Yeah. Um, instead, what I did was I felt like um, the nine to five was just not for me. Mm-hmm. However, I enjoyed my job. Uh, I really enjoyed the people that I worked with. It was pretty cool to li- to work in downtown San Francisco and have like that's those skyline views. You know, it's just like it was a it was a cool place. It was an interesting time of my life. But um, there was just something very important missing in my life. Mm. Um, And so I just started making stuff on the side and just started sort of selling it on weekends at a farmer's market. It really, that was it in the beginning. Mm. It was just like, I just have this hunch and I'm just gonna start doing this little tiny thing. Yeah. And for so long that to me, like, you know, whatever day I was at, I would, I would look back and just think of that beginning with, a little bit of embarrassment and now finally I'm like I feel like I can look back at that with a little bit more compassion and see that that's just what I needed to do that's just how I needed to start yeah to get to where I am today but yeah it was so it was such a tiny step and I just I just never stopped and every every year just a little bit bigger and a little bit more and a little bit more commitment and a little bit more business knowledge and uh and like courage i guess yeah. yeah yeah i think like that's really not an uncommon story it's not in the like craft business space right you know? but it's <laughs> sure. but as i'm like in now more like an established business yeah in surrounded by more established businesses yeah um I can look around and be like oh like that that was cute you know (laughs) that's like that's absolutely the journey I needed to go through but it's different yeah that's true that's true it's different yeah that's a really good point I think that it's I guess it's not an uncommon story that I hear in running a very specific like lensed podcast around people who generally are working in fiber and then realize like oh this is something I just this is an impulse that I just need to keep following and yes. see where it leads yeah, yeah yeah and that's and that's a beautiful thing like I um I really hope that that doesn't doesn't I don't I don't mean to be dismissive no, you know of no. that journey at all it's absolutely critical for us and it's a beautiful thing to realize in our bodies that we cannot let go of creativity that Mm -hmm. we must have that in our lives Mm -hmm. and that we keep it alive any way we can even if there isn't a plan in place yeah like 
sometimes we don't need that. We just need creativity to stay alive in, mm-hmm. our, in our lives. Totally. Yeah. And I think that that's yeah. really special and yeah, really important thing that you've mentioned. So I guess I wonder when this, you selling at farmer's markets and stuff, when, like what those initial iterations looked like and when it sort of then became like GDS. Yeah. Um, initially I was making clothing. Mm-hmm. I had a pants style and a button up shirt style. It was a cotton, cottoned up pants and a chambray linen top. Mm-hmm. And they were pretty much like gender neutral pieces uh, in a range of sizes. You can come into my booth, try them on. And in a week or two weeks, I'd have the finished piece too. So it was like everything was um, made to order. That was one sort of like little mini collection. Yeah. And then pretty soon after that, I started making linen coffee filters. Mm. Um, so that was there right from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were a few other random pieces. I did make aprons from time to time. I've always loved aprons. Yeah. Somebody asked me that why the other day, and I was like, completely stumped me. And I'm like, I, I have like an apron business. Like, how do I not have an answer for this? I'm like, it's in my blood. Like, I have no idea. What a weird thing to just be like, to love aprons. I really need to have a better answer for that. Anyway, I've been making aprons for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it didn't look too different, to yeah. be honest. Yeah. What wasn't working then is these were, like, very complex pieces. Yeah. And I was charging, like, under $200 for them. Maybe, like, close to $100 for them. I don't know. It was a deal. Anybody that got one of these pieces from me back in the day got a really good deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so really, really quickly I got very tired um and mm. of of making those designs. Right. And um yeah, especially the, the clothing pieces didn't last very long because I just it just didn't make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Physically it's yeah. You can't produce them and sell on that margin. Yeah, it was a fifteen pattern piece. I still remember this. It was wow. a fifteen pattern piece shirt because there wasn't any um there weren't any like there was nothing infused, there was there was no like inner lining on the I'm like touching my shirt here. It's yeah. uh on the on like on the collar or any places that normally get reinforced, it were just like uh, extra layers of linen. Mm, um, gosh. Yeah, it was it was really well made. It was really beautiful. Um, I just wasn't paying myself properly, and um, so it wasn't like a really uh, great setup. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I feel like a lot of us start that way where you're like but but you know it takes me this long but who's gonna buy it for that much and oh but I just want to you know I'm just starting out I just want to make sure that people yeah I I think that there's like a recurring theme of like the first three years of my business maybe more and it was just like okay that it goes back even further it's like Mm. trial and error so that's how I learned to sew Mm -hmm. and then that's how I taught myself business (laughs) Um, until I actually started taking classes because it's really hard to learn business by trial and error. Right. Yeah. And did you, you started taking classes like here in Oakland? I did. Yeah. I took classes. um, Well, first of all, I took classes through Women's Initiative, which is a um, nonprofit that is, was amazing. It's um, no longer, no longer exists. Um, And that was, I want to say it was like either free or very, very affordable. Um, And they basically turned building a business plan into a, if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was like a 12-week program. Mm. And then similarly, a few years later, I took a course through Optima Business Bootcamp. Okay. They have... um, they're based both in Oakland and San Francisco and similar structure, except that they have multiple courses. The first one is a business plan or maybe the second one is a business planning course. And then there's also like a, a financials course mm. and there's a kind of a building infrastructure, like operations course. So once you're a little further along, you can actually like build out mm. the systems within your business. Um, and then more recently, just like in the last uh, couple of years, I've invested in myself uh, and the business more significantly. Mm. Um, I worked with, uh, a, well, it was kind of a course taught by a business coach mm-hmm. um, at the end of last year, and that was amazing. Mm. Um, and then I also worked with somebody that is in the 
uh, packaged food world. Mm. So that really helped ebb. Mm. Um, yeah, so just really recognizing, like, okay, I've invested a lot into this. I'm doing a great job. I'm, like, still surviving yeah. on my own. But there are these experts out there that I think I need to tap into right. to get me to the next stage. And that's been that's been really critical. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you for sharing those. I think, like, yeah. I was curious to hear about them particularly because I feel like maybe one of the goals of this, this season of the podcast is, like, connecting people within the Bay Area to each other and mm-hmm. to the resources that exist and mm-hmm. to helping people kind of get get make that first step or get that next step in kind of wherever yeah. they are in their journey. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, I want to hear more specifically about Ebb because I feel like um, there's this whole piece of you of sort of, like, your interest in food and your interest in the way that food and coffee and um, the way that we kind of, like, nourish our bodies kind of all fits together and I feel like Mm -hmm. Eb is kind of a really critical expression of that yeah I don't think it's a coincidence at all that I started my business I'm like major air quotes around business (laughs) at the farmer's market yeah that is a place where um so first of all it was my like neighborhood farmer's market so it was like the farmer's market that I would go to on a regular basis anyway for Mm. my own food shopping so I've always had um strong values around the food I eat and around health Mm. um and also being at that farmer's market I think there was a a connection to where I'm from um and the feel of community and that um I just remember going to farmer's markets at a really young age like my mom sending the kids down with like coins to buy the morning bread you know yeah um and having that just having that feeling at a farmer's market and maybe specifically at that farmer's market because it was so close to my home and so that was a a natural process and then I think pretty quickly um building relationships with other business owners um at the the farmer's market um and then seeing um like meeting the people who were interested in the, in the aprons. And there was just, I think from there, everything grew kind of naturally. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it all came really from my interest in food, my interest in like the home and community and Ebb specific. Like, I mean, I, I Ebb was sort of like, uh, became a, like a little vortex. Mm, yeah. So, I it got connected to some businesses and coffee through the aprons. I started making custom aprons for other businesses. That's that was like my first um, step out of the farmer farmers market world, and the first way that my business like first grew, mm. um, or the, the way that my business that it that my hobby started to become a business, mm. um, and. I would, I, I tried introducing the coffee filter to them and they would try it and there would just be like a lot of silence and I would follow up and, and then I would, I would, I was relentless. I think this is the thing that's like really good for me. Like I don't take these things personally. I'm just yeah. like, just completely relentless. Like you're either going to buy it or you're going to tell me no to my face. And eventually I would hear things like, um, and this all happened within a really short period of time, but and it was this one um, apron collaborator specifically that finally told me, like, it's just not very good. Mm-hmm. Like, the water, f- you know, pours through really quickly. And um, and I don't know why. I was like, okay. Like, that's – I just decided that I would make a cloth coffee filter that brewed really great coffee. And that was my unspoken, unacknowledged goal for myself for a really long time. Mm. I think it took me a really long time for me to even recognize that, like, that is a goal I set for myself. I just knew that fabric could filter coffee well. Yeah. I just I just knew it could and that it would make delicious tasting coffee. Like, knowing fabrics, like... Like, why, why couldn't it? Right. Uh, and then that that's really when the journey began. Mm-hmm. Um, I started to, luckily in the Bay Area, I because I was like, I mean, this is like such a hub for specialty coffee. And then also I knew a bunch of people in the coffee world. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had, even though I didn't know that much about coffee at the time, I could make a bunch of coffee filters out of different fabrics mm-hmm. um, and give it to a bunch of friends to try and get feedback. Um, and ultimately, there is this, like, clear winner, um, this one type of fabric that just 
made really good coffee. All the people that were in coffee would just come back to him and be like, I have no idea why it works. It works. And then we would kind of throw ideas around about like why maybe that was um, so good for filtration. Yeah. Um, but I mean, not just filtration, but like extraction. There were like so many other components. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And then we, and then from there, it was just like, I'm going to say that the rest was easy, but um, no, there was like a whole other chapter, like the the uh, fabric sourcing was, yeah. was really uh, very, very involved. Um, but I think that's, that part kind of took the longest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Getting, getting just to that point. Yeah. Because there was a point where you visited all of the suppliers or the, the pieces of the production of Mm -hmm. just the fiber or the fabric itself right for the coffee filters yeah but I mean even just to get to that point right there was I think of it as like its own big chapter because um I'll share that just because I think it could be really insightful for anyone else thinking about really committing to their sourcing Mm. um it's it was not easy even with my background in um, in the textile world. Yeah. Um, but ultimately what happened is that I was working with a fabric supplier who was providing me an organic cotton that worked really well. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, I was going through the organic certification document in detail and, um, just noticed that the organic certification was really old. Mm. Um, and that seems odd to me. But I think even before then, I may have the timeline a little uh, mixed up in my mind, but before then I was calling a bunch of different um, textile producers in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, I was pretty sure at that point that I wanted U.S. organic cotton, mm-hmm. but there was one woman who did not make a fabric that would work for me, but I guess she was willing to help. Um, I don't know. A few months after we spoke originally, she called me up and said, you should really look into your supplier or the, or the producer of that fabric. And she really investigated because there is a like speculation or suspicion in the industry that they are using not Texas organic, but some other cotton. And in that case, there's no way to even know if it's organic. And at that point, I contact, and and she suggested that I contact the Organic Cotton Cooperative Mm. to investigate, just to see like when was the last time they sold them organic cotton. And I did just that. I contacted them, spoke to the manager of the cooperative there. And at that point, it didn't matter to me anymore that like what, what the deal was with that other fabric. Mm. Cause at that point I was at like the heart of, I, I had this amazing contact now. Mm-hmm. And I, that's when it occurred to me that like, I could just make my own fabric. Mm-hmm. I didn't need somebody else to have, to have made this fabric for me. Like, and it was just such an interesting moment because this entire time I was looking for a fabric for my product and it had never even occurred to me to make my own fabric. Yeah. And then when I got to the heart of it, maybe uh, the manager of the cooperative suggested that there was like somebody that could help me. I, I don't know exactly how it's like a little foggy in my mind now, but yeah, it was getting to the very, very source of it mm. that um, allowed me to like have that idea and yeah. And then, and then things started from there, but that journey alone probably took close to a year. Yeah. 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 That's really interesting. I mean, it's, it's like a little bit as you were kind of talking about the fact that they could be selling you this like organic cotton, but that there's some suspicion that it could be not like, that's, I mean, that's a little bit alarming and a little bit like, I was a little disheartened by that. Yeah. It's just the, the reality and the state of things, you know, like, yeah. um, a lot of the people in the industry who are selling organic cotton, this is like behind the scenes. I'm not talking about retail stores. Mm-hmm. They, they're in the business of making money. Yeah. And if they're in the United States, they're in a business that's like not thriving. Right. You know? So their heart isn't necessarily in building an organic, sustainable industry. Yeah. Um, and we need to keep that in mind that a lot of them are inorganic because it's trending mm-hmm. and it's making them a little bit more money than they would make otherwise. Right. 
um, they don't have your best interests at heart. They really don't. Right. Um, that's not necessarily the case with the people I worked with, uh, but that's often the case. Mm. Like the supplier that I was working with, he wasn't verifying that the manufacturer of the textile had up-to-date um, organic certification. Yeah. You know, like people aren't doing that work yeah. um, as like designers, like it's on us. Mm. I mean, it's, it's on everybody, but it can, there is no larger system in place right now that's going to make sure that everything is, is, is what it is, you right. know? Right. By the time it gets to you, it just moves through so many, textiles move through so many hands. Yeah. That, yeah. I mean, that's such a key part of the whole, of any production of any, any textile good, huh? Is that yeah. it's just, I mean, if that, whether those hands are here or they're across the world, there's just many, many hands that yeah. touch each individual garment or anything that has to do with textiles. Yeah. And I think because it's, it's so, I think the way that, that it, it, it's allowed to happen, for instance, for somebody to use like an old certificate is mm. because people aren't checking, right? Mm. Um, and it's really easy in the system that we have set up because everybody wants to believe that it's organic cotton, right? If somebody says it's organic, everybody wants to believe it because you can sell it for a little bit more. Right. Um, and even on the designer's end, like it's easy to not verify it because you know your customers want what they want to hear right. and you don't think you need to double check it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's an unfortunate reality, but um, it's it's not it's not that hard to verify things like that. Mm. Yeah. Sounds like it needed a little knocking on doors and a little few phone calls. Exactly. Yeah. yeah for sure. Just yeah. phone calls. Yeah. 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 Which like... Yeah, the textile industry still doesn't isn't like so into emails. Right, they're like phone call kind of people. Yeah, yeah, it's, that somehow doesn't surprise me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I feel like that's been the case when I've talked to people about either how they've learned some part of their textile or fiber craft or um, how they've sourced. It's been like, oh, these people have no internet presence. You yeah. cannot email them. Like I met them at a you know sheep sheep and wool show. Especially wool. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. She, you know, we went to this festival and they happened to be there and, you know, old Bob over here told me about Mary Sue and then yes. she taught me to spin. Like, I mean, that's definitely been my experience of, um, or when I learned how to spin, like in Tasmania, it was just all like, oh, talk to this person and let me write down their phone number for yeah. you that I like know. I know their phone number. Like, that's amazing to me. Um, I don't think I carry any phone numbers in my that's brain so anymore. <laughs> but I'm really curious to hear from the sort of sourcing side, uh, more about your garments. And I know that there's, you kind of went through a big transition over this last year mm -hmm. with like a whole new fabric supplier. And it seems like from the way that I'm seeing the new denim project, like being used with a lot of different folks lately, that that's been, that they've had kind of a success recently in finding either that they're getting connected or that there are some other kind of um, the economics of it are working out for people or, so I'm just like curious to hear what that transition has been like and what your kind of take is on the, the whole thing. Um, yeah, well, first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the structure of my business now yeah. and the way I see fabric being like playing such a huge role in that. Yeah. Um, so Ab was the first fabric that, um, I, I guess I, I'll just, I think of it as like my business as like having a, the foundation being this like family of textiles mm -hmm. um, and each one is a different example of like a different story of how textile comes to be mm -hmm. um, and a different example of sustainability too. I think a lot of people can become very overwhelmed about it just thinking about like how to transition into a more sustainable life, a more sustainable wardrobe. And, um, there's just so much information coming at them. And, yeah. um, I feel like this is almost like a natural way of just sharing the information. Like, yeah. um, so organic cotton sourcing from, um, you know, local ish, it's a big country, um, but domestic organic cotton, um, production that is still being made locally that's you know one story yeah um and then uh with the upcycled denim yeah that is 
it, yeah, it's, it's very different, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, the process of making that denim is they, um, so the new denim project, uh, that is like one piece of this, one of the, um, fabrics or one of the grouping of fabrics, really, mm. but like one of the collection of fabrics that this mill in uh, Guatemala is producing. Um, they take leftovers from denim production. Mm. So there's a lot of uh, denim manufacturing in Guatemala. Uh, it's all 100% cotton, so like it can't have any um, spandex mixed into it or polyester, just 100% cotton. Um, all of that gets shredded and then gets recomposed with a little bit of new cotton, mm. uh, primarily just for strength because the shredded fabric, um, the fibers aren't long enough, uh-huh. so it would be very weak if that was turned into a yarn just by itself. But then all of that is mixed together, recomposed into a yarn, and then rewoven, mm-hmm. um, and then hence the name New Denim. And it really caught my attention, one, because it's beautiful. Um, I love the process. Um, I love that the mill is family-owned. Um, I love that it's in Guatemala. It's South America, which sort of, well, Central America sort of, like, speaks to me um, as, a, you know, as a South American. Um, but then also it's like not too far, you mm-hmm. know, it's not too far from home. Um, so yeah, um, all of those things, um, really align with my values. Mm-hmm. Um, and it made sense for, you know, thinking about this like new collection, um, primarily like apron offerings, mm-hmm. um, for individuals and people in the food industry yeah. still working with restaurants and cafes um that that would be that was just like an obvious um it was just really obvious to me like I could imagine my designs in that fabric um I could imagine being really proud to share that with yeah. others um and you know and that's a place that I could easily visit Mm-hmm. Um, so, and that, that's always like a given, like, can I visit the mill? Can I learn? Can I like speak to the people who are actually making this fabric? Yeah. Um, and I haven't done that yet, but I will. Yeah. Um, it's definitely in the, in the plans. Yeah. And it's, you know, recycling is obviously different from growing organic cotton, mm-hmm. different, different resources are used. I mean, a lot of the same resources, but a little bit more like energy intensive, but I don't think it's worse than conventional cotton right. you know or polyester right. it's it's an interesting conversation that i think is worth us continuing to have because mm-hmm. i personally don't believe in like searching for the one answer mm-hmm. there isn't one way that we're going to save the world i mean maybe like if we all stop buying things right. you know <laughs> like maybe that's the one way like if we all consume like 50 percent less right we might save the world. But ultimately, there are lots of options and there are some things that are really wonderful that just won't fit your lifestyle, yeah. you know, or like changes that you just won't make because there's just too much friction there. Like it's not going to work for you. Yeah. Just let, like, I'm okay with people making decisions like that, you yeah. know, like um, there are things that I don't do in my life, right. you know, that other people might judge me for. Like I'm totally okay with that because I've made some pretty awesome decisions in other areas. So I think it's up to each individual to sort of like pick and choose. And um, maybe it's like super local production for some products, you know, or, or um, uh, yeah, like recycled components for something else. Yeah. Or maybe it's a whole mix of things, but I think as, yeah, I'll just leave it there. Yeah, no, I and I'm off I, on a tangent. <laughs> no, no, it's all good. I I really like I really appreciated you kind of backing up to like each of these different things that you're making or these kind of textile families are to tell a different story and to mm-hmm. kind of engage the consumer in a different part of how it can what it can look like to be sustainable, quote, you know, air quotes. Because I think you are addressing a lot of different elements of what we think of in sustainable textile production with what you're doing of like knowing exactly what your source is, doing extremely hyper-local production when you are able to, like sewing within your own Oakland studio and having the oversight and the kind of like social responsibility there of like knowing exactly who's making the thing. And then like 
I think something we did haven't really touched on at all is like a lot of the the design work that I see you do is just like meticulous and really thoughtful and a lot of times zero waste or as low waste as possible. Mm -hmm. And so you're kind of touching on all of these different approaches to what we sort of traditionally think of as like slow fashion or, or sustainable textiles, but it's like really interesting the way that you've approached each of those different elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Um, <clears throat> actually some of the designs that are not zero waste that I launched at the end of last year, I did some rethinking, I did some planning the for 2020, um, early this year, and I'm actually discontinuing a lot of them. Mm. Um, part of it is because they do produce waste. And then part of it is just, I've, I decided to not do clothing right now. Mm. So it's a little bit side but yeah so the the focus really is on the aprons I'm going to continue with the tote bag um, yeah. all of those items are zero waste um, designs and that just feels right for me like that's what I need to continue doing it's just it's just like what clicks I'm like of course like I have all of these precious textiles like yeah. we're gonna use um, everything except for the unfinished selvage mm -hmm. um, and um, yeah. Um, I feel like I'm only touching on one part of your question though. No, I mean, I just, zero waste. yeah, I think, I think that that's, I think part of, yeah, I've just been interested in all the different ways that you've kind of really addressed these different parts of, of sustainable fashion. Mm -hmm. But I'm actually, I'm interested to hear, um, just kind of before we wrap things up, I'm really interested to hear like, you mentioned like, okay, maybe the, the clothing offering for now is not, you know, to what 2020 is going to look like for GDS, mm -hmm. but can you kind of share with the audience? Mm -hmm. um, it's always funny saying that. <laughs> it's like, nobody here. But <laughs> hopefully somebody's listening. Um, what 2020 kind of looks like or yeah. what you're feeling excited about for GDS? Yeah. Um, I'm actually really, really excited about the products. Cool. And sometimes like, taking things back is just the right thing to do. Like I just launched them, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, that's weird. Like, why aren't you just taking it back? Sometimes it just, it takes some deep thinking and, and, um, unfortunately, like it just takes sometimes something being out there for you to, for me to really, um, see that it's not, not time. Mm -hmm. Um, I it probably, if I had planned things a little bit better in 2019, I could have, um, you know, just planned it all better. But um, yeah, so 2020 is going to be, uh, as far as the products go, just really focusing on the food-related products mm. um, and really getting to know my customers because coming from like a very creative, artistic background um, and then like learning how to have a business and then now like having customers, I'm like, I'm so surprised some days. I'm like, <laughs> people like this stuff. Like, um, so I just spent, um, like almost an entire week, a couple of weeks ago interviewing customers yeah, and really learning about them and what's resonating with them the most. Um, and it was so beautiful. It's like such an inspiring experience. It was wonderful. Any other uh, business owners out there uh, who haven't done that, I like highly encourage it. Um, and yeah, just so, and, and one of the things I like that came up for me in one of the conversations, because at the end I gave them um, the option to like ask me questions mm. um, or offer any other suggestions that I haven't asked specifically. And, um, and I can't remember what the question was specifically, but the words that came out of my mouth was like, I want GDS and M to be the best it can be for, for my customers. Uh -huh. Um, so that's, I, I'm like having to, I kind of know how to do that, but I'm like implementing that this year. Yeah. So, um, just finding ways in that like I haven't thought of making my product better because I use it a certain way, but like right. it's out in the world, like a, bunch of people are using it yeah you've know? got like a lot of case studies yeah like I you know what I do with my filters at the end of its lifetime is like specific to me being the business owner like right. what what do people like what are other people doing or like what what are their needs like anyway I've just learned so much and that's so wonderful so I'm going to be um, implementing like not just little changes but um just being more present and communicative, I guess, with, with my customers. Yeah. 
um, launching new products that are more relevant. So like more filters. Mm -hmm. Uh, There are definitely some styles that uh, people have been asking for that I haven't um, put out in the world yet. So Mm -hmm. those are um, in the, in the lineup for the year. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's like a plan for everything this year. So that's, what's different from previous years. Like I have a marketing plan. There are a lot of collaborations, um, lined up, uh, that I'm really excited about both kind of like more on the back end, uh, like, um, like custom coffee filters mm. um, for other businesses, uh, but then also just like features for our new journal, like interviews yeah. with um, other people in food. Yeah, things that I, it's just going to be a lot more. Yeah. It feels really good to be organized and uh, and to just be more productive. Yeah, awesome. Um, and then the one thing I will add that is not on the schedule yet, so it's not probably not going to happen in 2020, mm. but maybe early in 2021. Um, is the third fabric in the family. Um, and I would love that to be a local fabric, like mm. something like a Sally Fox denim would, be, would be the dream. So, yeah. um, we'll see. We'll yeah. See make something like that work. That's exciting. I was, yeah. um, I was like just over at Cosa Arts, um, talking to Elaine there and she mm-hmm. had like, she was selling Sally Fox fabric by the roll. She mm-hmm. had like the um, jerseys there. Yeah. And it was just like, it was just cool to see it in person like that on this beautiful, huge, you know, yeah. the fabric is so wide, like just wild. Yeah. It was really cool. Yeah. That's super exciting. Yeah. Cool. It sounds like there is, you've been able to kind of like get really focused on the things that feel like really true to you and your core mm-hmm. like business and then be able to like really vision out what you want to do with them, which yeah. is super exciting. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Annie. It's been great talking. Yeah.